American author Wayne Dyer observed that society always seems to honour its living conformists and its dead troublemakers. Well, we reckon it's time to put that standard to the test. Hi, I'm Waistcoat Dave and this is Confessions of a Troublemaker, the podcast from Compassionate Troublemaking. Hey Compassionate Troublemakers and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. As I've said previously while we've been in quarantine, I'm always a bit dubious about saying I hope everyone is doing okay, but I do hope everyone is doing as okay as possible. Here in lovely Birmingham, we've had some really nice weather recently, so I've just been trying to do a bit of self-care with some gardening and enjoying the garden because when I've lived elsewhere I haven't always had the opportunity to to have that you might be able to hear the bird song in the background this week I'm interviewing Alex Barker from the Be More Pirate movement and it's fascinating conversation uh, Be More Pirate is it's it's a movement that I've known a lot of people involved in or quite a few people involved in for for a little while for a couple of months and hearing about and hearing what drives those people is always fascinating and one thing I'm generally enjoying about this whole journey with the podcast is finding what makes movements as well as what makes individuals tick and what lays the foundations for some of these change so there's a lot of things here that that we've touched on that I've touched on in previous interviews you know about what what large-scale social change looks like what identity within that looks like how do we make sure you know that we hold ourselves accountable but it's really really nice to hear Alex's take generally because each person's take is fascinating and each individual's experiences are fascinating but also be more pirate is pretty out there it's a pretty alternative way of looking at things and the base that it uses is really fresh and, and revitalizing and empowering so i really dig that and a lot of our conversation links into to all of those themes so i really hope you enjoy it this week and i'll check in with you as always after the conversation It can be slightly difficult to introduce myself in a traditional sense. So I'm Alex Barker. I work with Sam Conniff, who's the author of the book, Be More Pirate. That's the easiest way to start. My role has evolved and changed dramatically over the last year. So I started off as a right-hand pirate. That was the job that was advertised when I started. But I'd say I, midway through last year, I got promoted myself up to quartermaster, which just puts me on a bit more of an equal pegging. Um, and I guess my... The role that I play within Be More Pirate as a movement is really as the hub for the community, but also I do a lot of speaking and facilitating our workshops. It's a bit of a multifaceted role. I see myself as the leader of a movement, I guess, in some ways. But that sounds really strange to say. Something that interests me talking to quite a few people about these kind of things is we're actively stepping outside the normal parameters of like what a job is and kind of what the roles within a job are and who does what kind of thing. And so it's a really fascinating thing, almost being in the wilderness and being pirates, setting out that for ourselves. But then you've also got to communicate that in this world with you know, pre, pre-existing ideas of like words and, and, and what different roles are. 
absolutely it's it, it's this, the space between the paradigm shift like how much do you meet people where they are and tell them in in that language like i'm a facilitator i'm like i'm my background is in communications or i say in pirate language which is it's something much more fluid than that and or or to describe it differently maybe that's what we're moving towards these are my these are my skill sets i think mm. and that's what's relevant here rather than like putting myself into a a job title or profession per se so how would you define yourself within those skill sets i'd say that i'm definitely partly a connector i don't know if that's a title or a skill set but i i like building relationships with people i think i'm quite good at it and i like connecting with other people who i think will share similar values or areas of interest i like communicating ideas so that probably comes under the communications specialism that i was sort of developing over the last 10 years or so but there are lots of different ways you can do that so i wouldn't say that i fulfill all of those i just do it in a particular way mm. and yeah sort of i like facilitation which i think is really about just marrying up different people's viewpoints and that's i think that's really fundamental and facilitator makes it sound so technical and so boring but being able to assess dynamics in a room and understand how people can come together to create consensus i just think it's needed more than ever so hoping to keep on improving in that direction that really resonates with something that in a previous interview i did with um, susan smith who's uh, a change maker in in the us and she spoke quite a fair bit around that role of a facilitator and the point is that as a troublemaker as a change maker where you take the lead in something but also how there are other times where actually taking the lead isn't where you're best placed to do taking a step back and being a really effective um not follower but a really effective behind the scenes component yeah and I think it really opens up this idea of what is like a facilitator, what facilitator skills are, um, because it's a term that we've used for, no, I don't necessarily know for how long exactly, but it's, a, it's a, a term which has an idea associated with it going way back. And so I'm really interested by the revolution of that one as a, as a term, but two as a, mm. as a, as a platform of skills. Yeah, me too. I, I mean, I'd like to see a lot of professional jargon reinvent itself to be much closer to what it actually means and to be more interesting to people in terms of them developing that. Um, yeah, facilitation is definitely one of those. And I think, you know, I, I think a lot about power as a concept because it comes up a lot in the, in the pirate work, but it comes up in just simply by being in a room with different people from different backgrounds all the time and understanding where you should sit as a facilitator like what is the moment to really empower somebody else and try and draw that out of them and that's really i think that's quite hard but quite a, a good skill set and it's a different kind of leadership to dominating mm. or you know putting your vision forward and sort of asking people to get on board so, so looking at um be more pirate i'll give a bit of background around how that started and how you got involved with it be More Pirate was, as I said, originally a book written by Sam Conniff back in, it was published in May 2018. And, you know, he went on the usual sort of book tour. But over the period of about eight months, um, hundreds of people started writing to him to explain the action that they'd taken off the back of the book, which he had encouraged in the book, but just never expected to happen. Because I think as an author, you don't ever really believe that anyone's really going to read it or at least read it and take it that seriously. 
So he was quite surprised and had this growing sense of something starting, but not really knowing what to do with it because he was also just very busy and occupied with other things because he previously just left his job. So I, so yeah, so it got to a kind of critical mass point where he realized I either start something or I, you know, I really ignore it and let it die and put the idea away. And yeah, he decided to, he had some, some support from various people who really rallied him to, to get something up and running just at least some meetups to begin with. And then he had the opportunity to hire someone permanently. And that was me. So I joined him in January, 2019. Yep. And I don't know, I, I guess it, it was a different brief at the beginning. It was to start the community and the movement out of, and, and, and essentially investigate what all these people had emailed him about and understand what all this rebellion was doing, um, what kind of things that they were doing. And it ranged from people writing their own pirate codes to just some kind of small rule breaking here and there to some much bigger group action. And I've just followed all of that. I've just, I just followed the energy and followed the people and started to get to know them and really dig into it and understand the challenges, the opportunities. And that's really what's resulted in, in this new book, How to Be More Pirate, um, and that kind of manifesto for people to take some practical replicable steps that other people have done, but also just ultimately take inspiration because what you said about movements, the thing is you're, you're right. It's, it's not always the output of the movement. I think that's makes it a success. It's the effect it has on you as an individual. It's quite transformative to be part of something um, that feels, you know, that you're, you're part, you're connected and you're contributing to something. Um, it's what put, in my opinion, a lot of political or political parties tend to lack a bit. So that's what's happened really. I, I guess our movement is there's thousands that are at the wider reaches of it, but there's probably a core group of sort of a few hundred who really consider themselves pirates and have really taken it seriously. So yeah, that's, that's how it started. And I'm just intent on growing it. Sounds to me like you've kind of taken it in your, in your, in your wake and gone and said, right, I'm taking this idea. Here was an initial brief, but you've then almost transformed that naturally through the experiences that you've had. I spoke a fair bit when I interviewed Math um, Potts from the Camarado's movement on when there's a movement that's created which has a figurehead of sense. So mm. for the Camarado's, Math was very much at the front of that, a very kind of visual presence. Same with being more pirate. How have you found in moving that structure? Have you found that easy or, you know, challenge, not challenging it in, in the sense of, not acknowledging a role, but changing in terms of opening it up. Have you found that to be an easy journey or a difficult journey? It's funny because I had this exact conversation with Math. Because <laughs> we, we did, uh, yeah, it, there, is, there are similarities. Um, it's challenging at times, I won't, I won't lie. I think it's challenging. I think, every, I think everybody in the movement is sort of fine with it evolving it has it, as it's evolved. I think that I have probably found it challenging partly stepping into Sam's shoes in some respect not necessarily always feeling equipped for that but also knowing that I'll probably bring my own take on it and my own take is potentially also interesting I'm I'm female as well so it's it's it obviously comes from a different perspective and I yeah I think Sam and I come at pirate from different angles which I think brings an interesting balance to what how the movement can expand mm. um but yeah and I, I had very clear ideas about networks um, when I came to Be More Pirate because I'd had experience um, prior to this in running or being part of a big 
network and, and trying to create smaller subgroups. So I wanted to move away from it feeling in any way sort of transactional. I wanted to make sure that I knew the people in the movement, or at least a chunk of them really well to the point where I could pick up the phone to them because that felt that the, the strength of the connections felt really important. But also I, I realized that like another thing I felt strongly about was not broadcasting from a center point. So it had sort of been that way with Sam in, in a sense, because he had a book and a text and a person there. And now what I want is, what I'm trying to develop is ultimately a series of pirate captains who've got their own crews and who can very deeply connected into their own communities and networks, because that's where the power is. Mm. Who can speak to other people. That's how the idea is that we're trying to generate will be passed on by people who are deeply connected to others. So I want to give full autonomy and power and as much support as I can to other people who've got their own crews in their own sectors or communities or whatever it is. And that's really, so I see myself as like just one kind of hub with a few other like hubs around me and then that goes out much further rather than me and then hundreds. <laughs> when I reached out to you initially and I, I own it and it's good for my own reflection as as I look at compassionate Trump making when I reached out I was reaching out to chat with Sam um because he had written the first book and 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 because there was the association with him and the movement and you know when you step forward and, and so it's funny because I messaged you and I said when you step forward and said oh I can do you know have the chat um at that literally on the same day I was there going oh actually Alex has done some really interesting, really, really good things. And I think it's interesting to see how perverse some certain norms are within our society. I think part of that probably links into gender, but part of it also links into the idea of hierarchy and the idea of you've got one person at the top and that one person at the top is the person you need to go to if you want to almost get anything done or get any response or action. And speaking personally, I've really, really struggled that, with that hierarchical structure when I've worked in local authority and where I've worked in that how do you see it that we're able to to try and take down some of that hierarchy or oppose it in a in a piratey way yeah um I again I think it, it comes down to power and I don't mean power I, I try and think about it much more broadly than power being vested in status um titles or like authority per se I, I sort of think that in order for a person to move up and down a perceived hierarchy they have to feel in themselves that they're able to to an extent um I guess a, a way of just just an example to describe it is um if you give if you're in a uh, if you're a manager trying to give a team um permission to try to be more experimental per se because I hear this quite a lot in organizations and, they, and if they just say it to them, say like, you've got permission to go and try some new stuff out. If you've been told up until that point, you can't be. And the culture is very much about conformity and doing things in a particular way. One, one manager saying to you once, like, do it, isn't going to change it. Like, you've got to feel in yourself that you have permission. And so usually how we approach it is saying like, you're going to have to model the, the behaviours first. Like, you're going to have to mm. really show that it's okay to fail or to like get stuff wrong and mess up and try it again. Because if that's not been their experience up until then, they're just not going to do it. So, yeah, uh, I think that's understanding what enables a person and what really gives them capacity is a key kind of leadership thing. And 
yeah, I think that's something that really breaks down hierarchy. And I guess it comes back to what we were saying about facilitation, like really understanding what it takes to support people to draw out their strengths. And I don't, know if, don't think Sam and I always get this right either. We're, we're still sort of um, understanding it amongst between each other and with other people that we work with. Um, if you don't try to appreciate it and understand what power is, then you're always going to fall into the default status quo. Mm. So it's about understanding this person really likes to, to, I had, it was, there was an example with a friend of mine recently who said, I didn't understand that some people need to go away and think about the question for like 15 minutes before they come back to me with, with their best response. I just assume that most people can kind of just say on the spot because that's how I work. And she felt like she wasn't getting the best out of them. But I was like, maybe it's just a different learning style. Getting to understand the person, um, if you're in a team or something, I think would, would really help to break down hierarchy. What you've linked to there is is reflection for, for both you and Sam and for mm-hmm. other people. And I said it recently in another episode that the amount of change makers that I've come into contact with both professionally and personally, and you look at their practice and they're doing some really, really great work in one sense, but actually in another sense they're they're kind of letting themselves down because um you know they're they're they think that they're they're in this mindset of we're doing some really 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 good work there's no way we can go wrong with this or there's no way that we can slip up with it and and what we then introduce is this idea of when you do slip up you either ignore it or you're over it becomes this massive massive thing and Suzanne Smith again I've used it since she she frames um, slip ups as as not let downs and not kind of negative things but as CD skips because when you have the CD in the in the you know in the car journey or on the wherever sometimes the CD skips a, a little bit and you don't blame anybody for that there's no negative you know it just it carries on sometimes you might need to rejig it and I think there's still this massive gap around reflecting on what we can do better within the social change, um, I don't want to say industry, but movement at large, I guess. Um, yeah, <laughs> you're probably going to hit a bit of a nerve here. I, I, I think that's hit the nail on the head, really. Um, the social change innovation sector really really lets itself down in my opinion um because of that lack of a general lack of transparency and a general lack of like i said oh, a sense of we're on the right side now so what could you know what could go wrong and then you get lots of individuals who will cover up mistakes or failures or just quite blatant hypocrisy actually um and it really and i and i, I say this actually at the beginning of the book because i don't think there's anything worse in a way than thinking somebody a group or an organization are kind of like your heroes and then understanding that they're not the they're actually kind of the villains here and then you mm-hmm. you're just so orientating and confusing because you think no surely i've got i've got it wrong because they, they do such great work like how could i possibly uh you know this this behaviors or whatever's going on that i'm seeing that i think is wrong i must i must be wrong i must have just missed something and i think that's deeply c- confusing and it and there's a lot of people, I think, out there who have shut themselves up about it. Um, so, yeah, I think there's... And the question is, how do we introduce that level of reflection in a way that will 
will take hold. I'd love to see how you create uncomfortable conversations in, in a social change arena. Um, and yeah, and acknowledge that they're not, we're not necessarily getting it right anymore. Um, I don't have the answer to that at all. <laughs> no, but I get, I, I'm really enjoying the space that is being created, not just by yourself, but by quite a few organisations, quite a few individuals, to just explore that and not necessarily to have the answer to it. And I think this is part of the problem. I've talked about it before that with problem solving, we're so focused on finding the answer and moving it forward that we don't sit with the problem. We don't sit with the difficultness of the problem and of the kind of unknowing stuff. And um, again, social impact architects, um, Suzanne uh, Smith has a really good structure, which is it, it led a lot of my work called the social alchemy theory. And part, a big part of that is you can go from the exploring of the problem and you want to spend time in that. You could then go to finding a potential solution and testing that solution. But doing that could identify a new problem. So rather than that being a, a kind of linear progression, actually it's all, it's all over the place because then you're talking about scaling something up. And, and something that I really yeah. like about your imagery of the different shifts is... You know, if you had a community in the northwest of England, let's say, there's going to be certain obstacles and issues and experiences in the northwest, east of England, northwest of England, that you don't get in London, let's say. Mm. And so the idea of kind of scaling up, if you scale everything up identically, it's going to fail. And I think, again, that seems to be part of the difficulty with third sector and and social changes it's the idea of well, this is how you do it now that even in the working world you know the uk has moved to a more soft skill related industry and um, there is more importance put on what leadership is and actually the the, the um, certain skills that maybe 20 years ago were were anybody that was saying it were the outliers Mm. how how important do you see is that kind of almost an educational reform to to match up with the changing world as key to effective facilitation <laughs> well i'm glad you asked <laughs> um i think it's absolutely fundamental i think it's probably one of the, it's probably maybe one of the most important things we could look at doing and i look at it definitely through the lens of sort of obedience as a mm. as uh, and i've read i've read quite a lot about this over the last year in relation to sort of understanding rules and what they mean because we talk a lot about rule breaking and be more pirate and how much people are conditioned and it starts right at school to, to sort of obey a set of rules and also obey authority um, without any scope to really look at challenging or questioning at least the person giving you the information and why they're giving you that information in particular I'm not and it's not to say that you know there isn't, you don't need a level of obedience. You do, like there are some good rules to follow, but you've got to have a balance of it. You've also got to be able to teach people to actively question and challenge. And I think that there's an, there's an attempt to do it in higher education, but even then it's very, in very, very limited scope. And I think that once it's ingrained in you and conditioned that you should, that this is how things are and this is the norm, it's so hard to break out of it in later life. So, get, so having it when you're much younger is just fundamental. And I'm going to wedge my book promotion in the cracks now. <laughs> By all course, means, uh, <laughs> introduce it now, yeah. Just because um, there's some, some education case studies in the book. 
that look at exactly what you've just described. Um, what is it? What does a different way of doing it look like? Mm. Um, and three examples that just do it in totally different ways. One's a method of a particular method of helping kids to revise and learn, and just is questioning how we learn. So he, he takes them on a journey where they understand like the emotions that might be coming from like behind behind it. He's able to really predict grades based on how students feel about the subject. And it's all about this, the idea of performance. And he draws a lot of his experience on sports performance. Like people will do a lot better when they believe they're going to do better. So it's really looking at the whole picture of what's going on in, in the student's life in order to understand how well they're likely to perform. And there's a whole other school in Australia who've kind of taken entirely pirate mentality towards learning and don't have any KPIs around trying to get kids into universities or anything like that. It's all about, it's all geared around what, will lead them to live a fulfilling life and it's just very very holistic so they've they've got some brilliant kind of methods for how they do that yeah fundamentally it absolutely has to start with young people at school a frame that i always um use is we live in a world that is designed by at least perceived neurotypical people for neurotypical people and it really narrows the idea of what we see as skills what we see as a learning style what we see as that journey and if you, if that journey doesn't work for you, then there's something wrong with you rather than there's something wrong with the setup or the situation. I remember being taught those kind of like um, almost analytical skills to be able to take some information and go and say, well, how do I think about this? What, you know, and that was taught either in history or politics at quite a later stage. And it was traditionally discussed in the form of looking at historical data and historical things it wasn't about you know what i'm hearing what i'm seeing in the world around me now mm. and it was very theoretically driven and my worry for a while has been that, that introduces this idea of to be able to engage in that conversational questioning you need to have a level of either intelligence or perceived intelligence or access to something and if you do not have access to that thing then you can't get involved in that thing and i find it a lot as an obstacle within politics where people go oh, i don't get involved in that or i'm not smart enough to get involved in that it's not about one form of intelligence is more important than another it's about everyone having their different skill sets and us making sure that those really key avenues of engagement are open to everybody and accessible and I, so I'm fascinated by the fact that you mentioned power because I see that as a very deliberate thing by people in positions of power already. Yeah, I agree. I consider that so much of politics is dependent on debate, debating mm. skills and being good at that and how that is actively taught. It's taught particularly in private schools. It definitely isn't taught in state schools or maybe there's the odd debating club. But that level of assertiveness and confidence that you gain, that you practice regularly, I mean, no wonder certain people get, get, get ahead because the ability mm. to work your way around somebody else's point of view and make them believe that their point of view is that in fact wrong is fundamental to shutting people out of, the quest, out of the conversation altogether. So that is a real problem with politics for me. And I'd like to see it done entirely differently and it won't be done until we probably have a different kind of political system. So a provocative question moving on from that is the answer to that then making anyone that disagrees instead of debating them making them walk the plank 
anyone who disagrees. <laughs> so I guess what, what I mean by that is, I think there is the idea, whenever we talk about troublemakers, I've talked about this before with mm -hmm. compassionate troublemakers, where mm -hmm. compassionate, where troublemakers are seen as the bad people, that they're causing a mm -hmm. problem. And actually, it's not because they think there's something better. It's not because they're doing it for compassionate reasons. It's just because they're troublemakers and they want to cause havoc. I think pirates, over history, you know, pirates are the bad guys. They're the people that are stealing and doing this and doing that. And what I really like is that your movement is changing the concept of even what, you know, what pirates are and, and how that then relates to the modern day. Um, well, first, walking the plank is a, is made up by Hollywood. It's not no, it's not a real pirate fact. So exactly. I don't really, I don't really delve in the the Hollywood stereotypes too much. Well, other than to dispel them, and I guess yeah, I mean, at, at face value, of course, be more pirate looks like it's about causing actual trouble. But I mean, there's there's lots of things there. First of all, there's a thing about where your your data points come from. Like, what do you, if you think the status quo is okay, you have to ask yourself what what are you using to assess that? Like, I could say that my status quo is okay because I have quite, you know, a nice house and food in my fridge and I'm pretty sorted. But I know that that's just not the case for millions. Um, it's not the case for the majority of people in the world that we live in. So if I don't bother to expand my data points of assessing whether the status quo is good or bad, then I don't think that I'm really, I don't know, I, I don't think that I'm really, I'm not a full citizen in some respect. So... That's, that's sort of one way I, I look at it. But also when you delve more, like go further into understanding the history of pirates, you realize that, well, the, the era in which they lived was really, really violent regardless. Um, so the idea that they, they were criminalized not because they were more violent than anyone else, they were criminalized because they didn't adhere to the, to the particular rules of violence that were set out. So it was like, if you're gonna be violent on behalf of the state, then go for it. But if you're gonna be violent in order for your, you know, the gain of a group that we don't agree with then you're so it's yeah it's a it's a question I often ask about you know where's the line between legality and 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 ethics like mm -hmm. some there's a lot of things that are legal that are not ethical uh, that need re-examining there are a lot of things that maybe were originally illegal like pirate radio that are now legal and acceptable and seen as a good thing that have come in so bearing in always bearing in mind that distinction I think is helpful I really like you linking with the with the debunking of the myths because the that idea of um, you know walking the plank and stuff I was using it tongue in cheek because exactly as you say I think we have this idea which is very driven by the media around us be it movies be it news be it whatever and I'm always amazed by the amount of people at scale who just go along with that. And actually aren't looking to to challenge it, aren't looking to debunk some of that. And sometimes when you introduce something completely left of field like we're being more pirate, people aren't expecting it. And I think that introduces this really interesting point of debunking something because you're taking somebody out of their comfort zone mm. of sorts. And I'm interested, I mean, I could be making that up completely. Is that something that you found having conversations with a variety of different people and the responses to the book? that has been and even the book that you're writing now. Yeah, so actually I've, what, I've, what I'm trying to do in a sense is change the cultural definition of pirate. Um, and, and move it, not only move it on from like the stereotypical Hollywood parts of the Caribbean definition, um, but also move it away from what's unfortunately been claimed by sort of Silicon Valley, like entrepreneurial pirate startups, like saying that, you know, the, 
the Uber and Airbnb with your kind of pirates of, you know, and it comes from the Steve Jobs quote, I'd rather be a pirate than join the Navy. And I think that's co-opted in a different way. So well, what I've noticed about what I call our, our pirates, our sort of movement, is that the definition is, is slightly different and people will look at a, a pirate and sort of put them in the same campus sort of rebels. Um, when actually I think it's quite a different thing. Um, a pirate is usually somebody who has worked within the system for a long time and try and probably done as much as they can to try to change it in a less troublemaking way, let's say. And then just got so frustrated when they realized it's just not going to shift unless there's a level of rule breaking or disobedience in there. You're going to have to at some point stand up and challenge and you're going to have to be the person that maybe everybody's somebody is getting, you know, gets pissed off. With. So and that's just inevitable and that's just that's going to happen. That level of disruption is absolutely just necessary, um, but it usually takes a long while to go there. And there's a moment of inner rebellion that has to happen, a kind of internal shift within a person that says, I don't really see how else we're going to get there. And they can kind of make that reconcile that in themselves to go, okay, I'm going to have to be the one who sticks their neck out there. Mm. And I think, I also think it's quite different to traditional activism where you're part of maybe a big cause um, and you're, you're rallied around a particular thing per se. This is more about just, yeah, it's more, I guess it's more of a personal thing to begin with. What I find really interesting about that is, the flexibility that that then allows because you're able to bring in if you're developing the skills which you know if you look at the kind of social change work protesting whatever that looks like there are similarities that run through they're not all identical by any means but there are similarities if you build those skills up it often allows people to move from one campaign to another campaign rather than being right i'm solely focused on this specific issue um, and that's why i'm always drawn to movements that build up the sense of a community the need for replicable out outputs um, becomes a pat like an epidemic of um, ill-fitting solutions that are just transferred to different places um, and that it has to swell much more from the like creating the right conditions in the, in the first place is the most important groundwork that you can do um, and I guess that's how I how I talk about pirate codes um, as, as a set, set of not rules but rules about rules it's almost like a, how, mm. how we behave and work together to create the right kind of conditions for the eventual outputs that we get to down the line um, yeah, I think that, that definitely the social impact sector gets stuck in that. And I think it's also a problem of funding, that funders always want outputs and they want to see what you've done. And you're so trapped in being having to produce that you don't get that chance to really explore the messy bit in the middle and then revise. I think that's just a, system, a systemic problem. And I would like, I'd just like to see more funders put trust in people in the, in the mission statement, I guess, or the values of the organisation and the people involved in it to make the right decisions. Um, and yeah, that, that, it definitely incurs some risk. But we've become way too afraid of risk as well. Mm. So when you're having these conversations with, with different members of the community that are then going and taking action themselves, have you, have you had anyone in that situation where they, the, the action they want to take is uh, maybe larger scale or requires a level of funding? Um, 
and that they've faced that obstacle. Because I know outside of the, the movement, I've heard the story so many times, I completely agree with you. But I'm interested to see how Be More Pirate and, and the movement around that approaches that. Yeah, actually, there's one really good example, which I use as my sort of champion case study for the third sector on this is a, a um, human rights NGO called the Child's Rights International Network. So they're fighting for to improve children's rights around the world. Um, and they they realise that they've fallen into this trap and they started calling themselves a self-loathing charity because they were just perpetuating the status quo and, and sort of what they picking what they call the low-hanging fruits of advocacy. So just really sort of saying the same thing as everyone else, we should fight, we fight for, you know, basic rights, shelter, um, protection. And they kind of took a really long, hard look at themselves back in, I think it was back in 2018, around reading Be More Pirate and going, this, this is the attitude we actually want to embody. Um, we want to not just um, peddle kind of stories of misery to keep our funding going, which is unfortunately the trap that charities get sucked into, but actually tr like be, be a, an organization that imagines a better world and puts a vision out there and stop, and stop thinking that just because these problems are intractable and have been like inexistent forever, that they're never going to change. So it, they wrote their pirate code and did a lot of work around their values and they ended up with a, a much more radical campaign <laughs> Um, list so they've started fighting um, for um, issues that other charities don't really want to touch like um, fighting against virginity testing and the kind of bodily rights of children which always feels a bit like sticky and a bit taboo particularly in different cultural contexts and they started um, campaigning to lower the voting age for children which again most people don't really feel is that important but actually considering like the big challenges we have up ahead people you know in the age bracket of 16 to 18 don't get a vote but mm -hmm. their future, to say that they're not capable of making good decisions about the future or assessing it as much as you know the older generation are seems a bit um so that, so anyway so they did, they did all this work and um actually their funders in the end liked them more for it because they were just much bolder much braver the brand was stronger the, like the sense of purpose was there they didn't feel like they were churning everything out so this, there was this real re-energization about the organization from doing that something i like within that is they're on their own journey and they've got their own fight at hand but you kind of need two two things one is you need people to have your back in that specific fight i think if somebody's making an argument for a topic or an issue that no one else is talking about at all that can be a real difficult thing so i do think that some of the support needs to be issue specific but also if you have this community behind you that, and it goes back to what you said before, you're developing those skills. It doesn't need to be around the same issue. But if you have a community that shares the mentality and a few of those base traits, mm -hmm. you can then turn to and go, you know what, I'm really struggling with this or we've got this obstacle or, you know, yeah. that's a really powerful thing. And, and I get the impression that's a relatively new step in, in third sector as well. Yeah, another another example that comes to mind which is slightly different is more about the crew building side of it is um, um one of our pirates sarah shed shed sheed i should not pronounce her name incorrectly um she uh started something called the artistic mutiny which is um a crew which has now got up to about 800 people it, wow. um in the, i know it really um kind of flourished she um essentially just launched a kind of provocation 
to challenge the way that funding is allocated across the cultural sector so mainly from the arts council downwards saying like it's it's just unfair the way that it's done like people who are independents or freelancers like just really struggle because they don't have the administrative capacity that other bigger organizations do and um, but they would be stronger if they banded together they would be able to challenge more effectively as a crew in a group so they've started to i mean it kind of all all kind of kicked off late last year and she, she was really building some momentum and then kind of coronavirus started <laughs> and it, it took a bit of a backseat but now it's sort of going on an upwards wave again she's actually managed to get interestingly she's gotten some funding for doing the be more pirate work instead and she's actually her her other business which is kind of project management for the arts she's now stepped away from and she's doing the pirate stuff more because it does seem like because we're in this moment of rule rewriting they're mm. going up somebody's taking some action so it is yeah you can see that it's starting to pick up in that uh yeah pirate leaders are leading the way i think there's something also really interesting about that that in the modern time we haven't had an uh a situation at scale that's been quite like covid no we've had other similar situations for smaller for for um size-wise smaller groups of the population and they have been still very very important and i definitely am a big believer if we take for instance the aids pandemic that was ignored by a lot of power players because it didn't affect them because of who they perceived it as affecting but if you look at for instance the lgbtq community during that time there's a lot of community-based support and work that was doing around there so the work was being done but at this level so I, I really like the fact that it's about using new approaches and new work, but that those approaches and those work aren't, you know, based in fairyland or however the certain parts of the media would like to present it. It's based in reality. It's based in things that we know have worked in other times and other places, but it's about being considerate and smart about and, and adventurous, I think, as well, about how we then implement it. Hmm. Uh, so it's really, really nice to hear that, uh, that that's picked up for them. How, how, how have you found COVID has affected you, your work or, and the movement as a whole, generally? Um, so in terms of our actual work, I mean, we, we did hear a sort of, like many people, um, as soon as it became... Um, apparent that you know a lot of the economy was going to shut down and people were going to have to stay at home for a long period of time um a lot of, obviously our work sort of just dropped off because much of mine and sam's work is in-person events and workshops um so that i think was initially you know disconcerting like what what are we going to do but i i never really personally on that level was never that bothered because i think our whole ethos is around about reinvention and Sam is one of the most creative people you'll ever meet and I so I full have full faith in our both of our abilities to use the situation usefully not just for ourselves but for for the community and think about how um you know how it can even strengthen what we're doing and I think that's really what's happened I feel that it took a few weeks to really get our heads around everything and as as I think with everyone and I think it was wise to to just try to understand what's going on um mm. but we've yeah so we've we, we've kind of all run workshops online and things now but also i'm starting to hold pirate gatherings as well online and we can just do it equally as well 
we've been, I spent a lot of the time writing the book, um, which was useful because actually I had a lot of undistracted time. And I was going to say that's, a, that's been a, a step, step in, in a certain type of direction, um, which yeah. we'll come on to in a minute. I've, <laughs> I've, I've always been really drawn, both personally as well as professionally, to the term resilience. But I think for me, part of it, like with a lot of terms, is there is the idea that it's been owned or taken hostage by practitioners and mm. by the medical side of things. And actually, I find it a really interesting word because it can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people and about reclaiming the, the idea of resilience, especially now I've talked to quite a few people about the potential um, large-scale trauma coming out of COVID in in variety of different forms, and the mental health services because that's the service that traditionally people would associate with it. They're not designed to take that large-scale input. So you know, loads and loads of people that aren't going to get the support that they feel they need and arguably do need. So what what can that? If it's not that, what does that look like? And I think resilient skills as part of that and and exactly as you say the fact that the only known thing is um is, is not really knowing you know what's coming is yeah, uh, is part of that definitely and i think that people just heard that be more pirate is more relevant than ever because mm -hmm. i mean i spent a year doing presentations where i say the only certainty is uncertainty and sometimes it feels a bit of a stretch for people to get there now it's not a stretch mm. it's real um, and we need to think about how you respond in uncertainty and what resilience is. Um, Nia, who's one of the, um, I guess, teachers, so they don't call them teachers, at the school I mentioned in Australia, um, she said to me, because they talk, she doesn't, I think she was one of the people who didn't, who's cautious about how you use the word resilience, because she deals with, she works with a lot of young people who've had lots of adverse circumstances in their lives and saying to them they need to build resilience is that she says they actually have a lot of resilience of course they do they look at what they've been through mm. but the benefit is that we have we can use our resilience on thriving where they have to use it on basically just surviving yeah. and that's the difference and that really we like just framed it totally differently for me and and sort of saying you need to build resilience suggests you have a deficit in the first place when they actually don't so i think sometimes using it as you say in a services kind of way people yeah it's like oh here's another thing i have to do or be or yeah. skill I have. Um, I think it comes back to, as we said before, about communication as well. Because for me, a big part of my practice has always been reflecting on what skills somebody already has. Because we get so kind of real focused on where we feel we're letting ourselves down or where we're struggling. That those, exactly as you said, those resilient skills somebody might be using to bear survive make our, our still skills that's making the difference between what their response is and what somebody else's response might be so having that wider conversation about kind of resilience and i guess yeah part of it is is, is a change of you know not just about resilience development but resilience awareness maybe or even the term awareness is a bit of a, a tricky mm -hmm. one um but i think we live in this world where we're so kind of like right quickly i you need to you know, I'm somebody that says uh, 4,000 words when 400 will do kind of thing. But actually, something I've had to kind of get accustomed to is sometimes it is okay to use a few more words if that then helps you to convey the reality of what you're trying to say rather than a simplified version of it. Mm. Yeah, 
yeah, I agree. Um, I think that I've become more accustomed throughout this pirate journey of, uh, yeah, using, allowing myself to work it out as I go mm. a bit more. Because I, you know, I, again, was prior to this in probably an environment where you, you really felt you had to just know what you were doing all the time or be an expert and being able to mess up and be more um, okay with that is, I'm still, I still struggle with it a lot. I'll admit that. Um, but that's conditioning and that's why I'm so conscious of yeah. what we talked about earlier around young people and the conditioning that you get when you're young that t tells me I have to get everything right all the time, first time, and I'm going to get really partially judged otherwise. And actually a lot of people, time people aren't really judging you and you're, you're just obsessing and that's really unhelpful. And it's particularly unhelpful if you want to change anything um, in the world. So, I mean, that's not to say you shouldn't have some level of self-awareness, of course, but I think there's a, there's definitely a tipping point. Um, I, I had a situation last week. I just think I found it really useful as a reflection, reflection between this um, and, and talked about just to make your point about language um, and things. I um, was just talking to a group of people, it was about 30 on a call, and I was talking about um, coronavirus response, responses and uh, I talked about what would it be like if we had a another person on the television every day talking about the citizenship response to coronavirus instead of just the medical and the political one because this is a citizenship issue as much as anything else and i hear lots of interesting perspectives from people from different circumstances and how what they're going through and i think it'd be useful for the nation to understand what people are going through so i just said it like i said it a bit like that but also i threw in a thing where i said could we have some kind of spiritual or moral guidance, but not the Church of England? Mm. And then, and then I got called out for it because a woman said, "You know, this is that's that's quite um, it's not very inclusive because as a person of faith, like that feels like I that you're sort of dismissing my what, what I'm part of, my community, my um, my philosophy, my beliefs." And it just was like, "Wow, yeah, you're you're right. I was, and I am, and I am, I suppose, and that's a bias that I hold for whatever reasons." Um, and I haven't examined enough, obviously, to think about in that situation. And But I thought that it was useful to air it because this is really, I think, part of the, the journey we need to go on around yeah, inviting in that discomfort and that level of reflection of yourself. Um, yeah. And I, I guess where I was going with it is that I you hold up my hands like, of course, I'm going to get it wrong, like 100%. I'm not here to say that of course you don't have all the answers and you don't get it right all the time and we've unfortunately just divided society into this horrible polarization of mm. blame and shame on the one hand and you've you've said the wrong thing and therefore you're you know this kind of cancel culture that comes up where if you say something that's once maybe a bit offensive you kind of get thrown off the cliff which doesn't feel helpful and similarly on the other side you've got you know um the kind of opposite where it's where people are outrightly you know, unkind and uncompassionate. <laughs> I try to um, differentiate between what I feel is hypocrisy when you are doing something because you're trying to get outside approval, but it's not what you really are. Mm. And the and 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 the, diff the the other thing, which is actually evolving your thought or your beliefs and values. So you might have said something a year ago that actually now you're thinking, well, I'm not there anymore. Um, but then, you know, someone will go, oh, well, I thought you were about that, but now you're like this. And 
that's good but it's good to have that evolution I remember I think I remember thinking about that a lot when I studied politics because I remember looking at some of the US elections and they had I think it was John Kerry where they talked a lot about him flip-flopping and they used to hold up flip-flops and say you know you can't make up your mind and I remember thinking a lot about what hypocrisy really was. The thing that I've kind of found myself drawn to is the idea of impact and intent and mm. people tend to focus on one or the other they'll either say well, I didn't mean to cause offence, so that's all that matters. So, so you're just making up, or, or it doesn't matter what you think. Or they go, well, you caused me offence, that's the only thing that matters. And actually, the reality is both matter. Because there's a difference. If somebody says, take your situation, if somebody was calling somebody out um, for being a Church of England, you know, being a member of the Church of England, and was spouting hatred towards them because of that, there's a big difference. Mm. And it's yeah. not saying that one's right or one's wrong, but there is a, there's a spectrum there. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, you know, if, if somebody will own the things that they've done, that's difficult. If somebody will own the mistakes they've made or, or oh, you know what, I shouldn't have used that term or this term or I'd say that different now. That's how we learn and how we develop. And I think the idea you need to get it right first time mm. is that, it, yeah it's, it's it's not real people make mistakes all the time and i think something that i've really come across a lot is and it's interesting because me as as you know a white um male who cis male who who appears um entirely heterosexual um without getting to know me and my journey mm. there are certain assumptions that are made and some of those mm. assumptions are completely true and some of those privileges i get from that are certainly mm. true but I've got a load of other experiences that kind of counter that as well. And the reality is both of those situations are true and valid. And, and it's struggling because I think we're, we're in this world where it's like, it's either one or the other. Being quite active in, in politics, I moved to a space where issue-based campaigning rather than party-based campaigning for that exact reason. That yeah. I, as somebody on the left of politics, being a bit simplistic about it but somebody on the left looking at a lot of the behaviors on the right and going that's terrible that's disgusting and looking at a lot of the behaviors of, of other people on the left and going that's equally as as destructive and negative but also but then being chastised mm. saying that yeah. and i'm like well this then isn't about the behavior this is about identity yeah and, and yeah. that's a real difficult place to to then be in yeah, I've had lots of people whose political views I've really disagreed with, but the way that they conduct themselves in their personal lives, I really admire. I need that's that's a complex situation to come to terms with. How can you call somebody a friend, or how can you how can you be uh, amicable with somebody that infuriate you on on a on a decision process or on an argument process or whatever? Mm. Um, yeah. And, and, and that's not easy. I think, I think this is something that's really key to compassionate troublemaking. It's mm. not easy, but it's more straightforward to go and kick off. And I think kicking off, using term, but creating adversarial protest is a really important thing. Getting a voice out there is really, really key. But trying to do it where you've got compassion into the mix as well is, is, is really um, a different beast. In trying to define pirate, because there can, like I said, there can be this recourse to just thinking of a pirate as just a rebel. But really, like I said, it's more like a set, it's more like a behaviour or a way of being, and you, which you can pick up and put down. I mean, if you're like pirate all the time, it's exhausting, as Sam says. Mm. I think in the book, 
and it's about and also if you always recourse to doing one particular thing or you're always about the attack that's not it at all if you ever i always say like if you're ever about one behavior then that's not really pirate because pirate is almost like a an ability to keep on disrupt disrupting and that means disrupting yourself so never really thinking oh this is the the action to take and i it's easy to describe in an example because an example is what made me understand it was in the example of Sarah, who I mentioned earlier, who has her arts mutiny, she initially, the Arts Council, um, uh, when COVID um, you know, started, I suppose, they had to change all their funding allocation and lots of um, smaller organizations and independents stopped, didn't get what they were intended to get this year. And immediately 500 people signed a petition to protest it and she didn't sign it. And she just said, I, I just, needed to step back and think about whether this was really the right route to go down. And she kind of wrote this really long um, explanation to her crew about why she'd taken this action. And I felt like she'd really internalized what pirate means is she's like, it's not about following the crowd. It's about listening to yourself. Yeah. And she just was there perfectly kind of, and she, she just, when she wrote the explanation, she said, I just wanted to think maybe I don't understand the view from their ship. And I love that as a, I love that. That's really a, good. Yeah, so she just yeah. didn't do that really well and it really helped me to understand what a pirate mindset is about. I think it also is good because it, it breaks down again that idea of the idea of a pirate isn't something that you own, it's not something that Sam owns. It existed before two of you and it will exist after the two of you and I've always um, found that as quite an interesting perspective because it can in one sense ground you but in another sense empower you as being part of a wider puzzle. Totally. And that's exactly why we're writing, we have written the second book is because Sam was very clear that it needed an update, that he's not, he's not got the answers. He, he's drawn on historical pirates and, and used some, some modern examples, but the application, you know, for, for lots of people, um, that, that's really what is the test of it. So understanding how people really have used it, um, at all, in all kinds of sectors, at all kinds of levels, it will explain far better what it is to be pirate and it's owned by them entirely. And mm. yeah, that's what I love about it. People can step into the story immediately. What Talk a bit about the journey of writing that book. What for your understanding as a pirate, but also your understanding as Alex yourself, what was that like? It has been, um, well, I, I, it was part of the original brief of the job um to to, to pot potentially do something like this but i didn't really make a start on it until late last year i start i wrote some i sort of wrote some short stories or blogs you might call which i never really posted anywhere um after i'd interviewed i said interviewed had a conversation with people in the network to understand what they were doing and so i was i guess over the year i was just gradually trying to understand it and I'm glad I didn't try to write it any sooner than now because there's been a lot of, you know, small epiphanies that, and they're still happening. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to bring particularly, yeah, my lens on it, um, a dip, a, like a deeper perspective on, and I guess what I was looking at is in the Be More Pirate, you've got a framework of the five R's, the only pirate joke, and it's, 
I was quite skeptical about that idea at first because it's alliterative and it just seems to fit too neatly. Um, <laughs> so I suppose what I've tried to do is somewhat unpick those things and go on is these, what's the, um, you know, do these translate into reality or is there something different or beneath it? And for example, what I said earlier about the idea of the inner rebellion, that that is a crucial first step before Sam's first step, which is rebel. So he's like, girl, I just break a stupid rule. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. A, a lot of people find that very hard. And something else has to happen in first in order for you to make that move. Um, for me, yeah, so for me personally, writing it, um, yeah, I think that, because I've been thinking about it for a really long time, when it, when it came to write a first draft, it just kind of flowed out. Definitely not perfectly, but it, it, it got there. Um, and I, I also had spent quite a lot of time reading about other movements, ideas that fit in a similar space, um, so that I understood that the, the broad landscape. So I, I'm trying to be quite clear that the ideas in the book aren't necessarily new. It's really just about the idea of application, that action is what we need and not just talk. It's not good enough to have theoretical ideas about how things should change or could change. It's like people start talking about agile or new ways of working 20 years ago and yet they're not the case in most organizations we're still in hierarchies so it's it's all very well for a progressive company over here to do something but it's really about how how will that catch on and that's what i think is more important so yeah um yeah i haven't found the writing too too challenging um i've really enjoyed parts of it um i feel that i've I continually feel really inspired um, by the people in it and what they're doing. Would you describe yourself now amongst your many other skills and many other kind of uh, identity things, and this comes back to what we talked about at the front about how you would introduce yourself, mm. but would you see yourself as a writer or do you see that book as a conduit for the movement, a conduit for some of that conversation Hmm. I see and, the, and is there any difference between the two? Um, I see the, the book as the conduit for the movement. Um, the whole purpose is that action, um, or people will find the courage to start stepping up and, and challenging the status quo more if they see other people like them doing it. I just fundamentally believe that. That spark of inspiration that you might get from stories is really important. I have always wanted to be a writer in a sense. I, I just enjoy it. Um, before I worked, started working with Sam, I had taken a short break from my previous job and had, was trying to finish writing a novel. So that was something I just have now shoved in a drawer. Um, but, but I never want to do it just that because I, I'm really interested in the world around me and mm. I like, um, I think of story, I, I really fundamentally blend storytelling and social change in my mind. I have done since like the fact, the thing that made me understand World War One was the poetry. It was like, the, that was what ingrained in my mind the level of trauma and disruption in the world that happened really, not through any of the factual stuff. And similarly, when I got to GCSEs, had amazing history teacher who told, talked about like the Vietnam War and civil rights movement through stories. It was like every, episode every lesson was an episode of a chapter of a book where he'd tell you and you just wanted to know how it finished i really like how i think probably in every single conversation i've had storytelling comes up 
Um, and I think, again, we're going through a social change of, of moving away from the idea of storytelling as something kids do when you're reading them their bedtime story slash something that you'll do when you've got free time, you'll pick up a, your favourite novel and read, and actually moving to this, this idea within our wider societal understanding of storytelling about how we understand ourselves and how we understand the world around us and the fact that again that's not new that goes back to caveman drawings that goes back to all these different things um but we're reclaiming the idea of storytelling for the modern day and for adults in the modern day i think i hope so i, I it's one of those things that that it, it, it's almost like a buzzword and obviously we now we all have social media we can sort of be the authors of our own stories in many ways but at the same time I every time I come into an organization and I we start talking about rules to break and changes to make and there's a lot of there's still a lot of like quite boring report writing going on and powerpoints with bullet points and conveying conveying what should be an emotional um content through quite dull mediums um perhaps i mean i just think there's a big segregation i think the advertising world has like enormous power and influence and often does bad <laughs> so, and then you've got the social change sector that sort of lags behind and lots of public sector and is not utilizing the full power of storytelling and that's because of the sense of moral um we're on the right side so therefore we don't need to tell the story good point um i think it's i think that it's largely in my in just in my experience just precedent that that's just how we how we put things out to the world and there's not huge impetus to change it um i think it's something that you maybe it was in an article i read that in your manifesto that you talk about how the idea of the manifesto is largely quite dull within the political parties mm. And actually, like the surrealism, if you look at the surrealist manifesto and like the kind of experimentation and like like eye-opening like worldview that they had, it's just on a different level. And I think, yeah, mm. there's a. I often think that that has to do with the, the professionalism. The professionalism always stifles potential because it's it just narrows. Um, it tends to narrow creativity um, because a lot of what feels creative can often be unprofessional or a bit, I don't know. Something's really interesting is within the industry I currently work in, I'm kind of between two, two rock and a hard place where I work for an organization, a very good organization, I won't say what the organization is, but I also don't want to be uh, picked up yeah. for putting down any organization because I believe the work they do is fantastic. I'm really happy I work for them. But this is an organization that has existed for a very, very long time hmm. and as a way of working. But we, the service that we're doing is a new service, not only for, for the company, but also at scale is only a year and a half old. Yeah. And so we're between this rock and a hard place where on one side, you've got that kind of ingrained way of doing things. But on this side, we've got, you know, these new situations, new circumstances needing a new approach. And that's a fascinating kind of juxtaposition almost between the two. Um, and I think it's hard work, but I hope that it is possible to bridge two. One of the problems is you need people at all stages, as in hierarchical stages, to believe in doing things differently. And I think we're very lucky that we do. But uh, 
I think a lot of organizations don't. And definitely when I've worked in local authority before, they haven't. They haven't understood the problems and, and quite a few things like that. So you mentioned the manifesto there, and that, that's uh, thank you very much. That's a nice kind of um, reference point. I, I really enjoyed exploring, like when I was thinking about, oh, what to call it. And even when I was looking at each of the points behind the manifesto, I was thinking, I don't want to write something that's same old, same old that you'd read or hear anywhere else because there's no point. So I had the words I use and, and the meaning behind it. I tried to um, be a bit more creative. If, if, you've, if you've had a, a, a read of it, what, what else resonated with you with the idea of being a troublemaker, either in the manifesto or also just generally in practice? Um, yeah, I, I think almost all the points sort of in some way overlap with our pirate mindset. I mentioned earlier about radical descent being paired with, I'm getting the language wrong, but... Radical um, kindness uh, and active descent. Active descent, yes, exactly. Um, I really like that because it made me think of couple of examples recently where about the idea that a movement can kick off from a place of love rather than anger and I, I think it was the Black Lives Matter movement um, was started with a love letter um, mm. and yet it's sort of also been tarnished by the media in the US as being like you know all about the riots I mean for good reason it's and I and I and actually it started from a place of real compassion and love I sort of said earlier about expanding your data points, you talk about that and amplifying smaller voices and just how do you reach those people. And one thing I always or tend to say in workshops and things when talking about why some of the rules don't work is, is because they were created so they were created by people who are so disconnected from the people that they're actually for or supposed to serve. And that's if you do that over time, it compounds and you create a system that actually doesn't serve any of the people it's supposed to be for. Um, because they were never involved in the first place in any of the conversations or the um, design, as you said earlier. So that's the proximity problem. Um, I That really resonates with me because I see it all the time and it go, happens again and again and again. And there, I just think there are simple, simple interventions that could happen to, to stop people, to stop it happening. And every organisation should try to do that. Um, things like just allowing staff to go out into the world and mix in communities or actively try to visit places that they don't they would never usually encounter whether it's a care home or a homeless shelter or a prison i you know be a bit more experimental even if it's a bit uncomfortable and also to clarify not in a way that feels tokenistic or just like you know some kind of voyeurism it's got to be about mm. meeting people on their level with a view to really understanding it i just I say it because I've, I feel as though this whole pirate journey for me has has really opened my eyes to how homogenized my personal networks were and how mm. how much lacked because of it. I understand a lot more from all the amazing people that I've met through this network and this year. Can't blame people too much for having the networks that they have. We know who we know. We we're brought up into systems where you tend to sort of be shoehorned towards people like you and especially if you go through education systems. Um, but then there comes a point where we have, I guess we have a responsibility to make more of an effort. Um, yeah. We say we care about diversity and to, to try and understand more diverse perspectives. And I, I expand it way beyond that, like beyond ethnicity and, and uh, sexuality and gender and think about life experience uh, in yeah. general. 
Um, one thing that always comes up with this is a movement of people um, having lived in different places or different circumstances um, can radically shapes how you are, your level of security, like home security and illness. Um, different having like living with chronic health conditions, particularly if they're invisible, um, is a really like it is a it's just a perspective that I think maybe gets missed off. And similarly, I think what you mentioned earlier about neurodiversity um, and how that impacts um, yeah, how you interact and things. So, but, it's, but the brilliant thing is, is I don't see this as, I think it gets taken as a moral argument too, too often when actually this is like, people are fascinating. <laughs> Definitely. So interesting. This isn't and, about point scoring. This is, no, this is about kind of just the, the world being a rich and, and, and varied place and, and falling in love with that a bit. Exactly. Let's approach it from a different point of view. This isn't like a box ticking exercise so you can get on your, you know, bandwagon and start saying I've, I've got, you know, I'm right on. This is about just being interested and curious and thinking about what you can learn from that. The idea of curated content is a big, big thing for me. I used to make content on YouTube and even then it was always curated content. It wasn't mm -hmm. just me, you know, putting my voice to something. And it's tricky because you need to broaden your networks. Not everyone can do that. Um, but the other thing is, you know, you're reliant upon other people meeting you there. Mm. And they're not always in a position to be able to do that. So as a really good example, at the moment, the podcast has been, you know, as much as we've had diversity on the gender front and on the sexuality front, um, kind of race as, as a factor it is still very, very white, the interview so far. So one of my big aims, and I am in conversation with a number of different people, is to diversify that. Because mm -hmm. I think it's it's so important just to kind of realise that social change and, and obstacles and, and life things, they affect everybody. And we, we all share similarities and we are all human. We talked before about the uh, compassionate troublemaking bar. That, that Mathbot oh, yeah. came up with the idea of. In, in this bar where, according to, as, as the cheer slogan goes, everyone knows your name, where, where would we find you? And that, actually, I was just going to lead into that from the last point because <laughs> you'd find me at the actual bar. Like, you know, in a bar, you actually have the, the bar with the stools. I love that place. I mm. always want to sit because I just want to talk to everybody I want to talk to the barman I want to talk to everybody like the rotation of people who come and sit up there because usually that's a place it's acceptable to sit on your own and I really love just being on my own and and talking to random people um so yeah that's that would be my spot I'd just sit there it's funny time. because whenever I used to go to a bar when I was younger all my friends would want to go and sit at a table together and I was the one that was like oh, I, want to, I want to sit I want to stand or sit on one of the bar stools yeah I get that I get up there um yeah asking people questions about their life getting really deep really quickly <laughs> yeah yeah do you enjoy people watching as well because i think uh i think that's part of that that kind of position is because you're getting everyone coming up to the bar kind of thing there's a level of uh hmm. yeah which i think links into storytelling even if you don't have that goal i mean you know as you say the idea of talking to these different people but i think even just there's something about having an awareness, and there is a German word for it, but I can't remember what it is. Having an awareness that everybody that you come across when you walk down the street or when you're in the bar or wherever has as complex and rich as a life as yourself. Yeah. And that's always, 
like fascinated me when it comes to um, people watching is the idea of oh, I wonder, I wonder what their story is. I wonder what they've yeah. got going. On. Oh, I know. Me too. I lo- absolutely. I want to dig into it straight away. Um, so yeah, no, I, I definitely do, and I think that yeah, again, is where literature's just has been such a big influence on me. Um, but but what I find funny is from my experiences thus far with publishing in the publishing world is that that's really um narrow and I can't understand it because you think for a world that tries to bring to life like the richness of human experience in all its varied forms that they'll then you know tend to employ certain types of people all the time um Mm. they have control over the the stories that get published ultimately that make it into the public domain Interestingly, um, one thing that I'm wondering about for the for the future of compassionate drum making is publishing, from a mm. you know from from a, an approach of kind of um, how you challenge that quite radically. Now, it's not an area that I'm particularly knowledgeable on. It's not an area that is my driving force, but I can definitely see if I you know came across somebody or somebody came on board with that. I think there is a need for that kind of where it's not academic because often you have a lot of. You do have alternative publications. They tend to be either quite academic in their writing or quite politically driven in their writing. Um, yeah, it's definitely changing. Um, you're good. seeing more like hybrid models spring up because they're realizing that authors want more flexibility and that there's a partnership approach here that's not been, rather than a service one, that's not been explored fully. Um, and yeah, so I, I there's some good stuff happening. It's just that they struggle to stay afloat. Cool. Last question. Where can people find you around? Um, so we have a website, bemorepirate.com. Um, you can contact me through that or come straight through to me. Um, I think it does. Um, but I am on do quite a lot of pirate activity on Twitter, as you know. Um, so I'm on there. Try to keep it as active. Follow Be More Pirate on Twitter, on Instagram, and I pick up all the messages and everything. So whatever suits um and yeah i'm always open to people to just kind of email me and um say hello and explain how they want to be more pirate lovely i like that i like that a lot well thank you for joining us thank you very much for having me Powerful stuff there from Alex, and it's interesting because each time, each week I do an interview, at the end of it I try and say something different and unique to that interview, because I think, you know, all of the interviews that have been done have been really unique, but I also really like the fact that regular points keep coming up about storytelling, about changing culture, and, you know, taking chances, and I think a lot of that is manifested so nicely in Be More Pirate, in the campaign, in Sam Conniff's book, and in Alex's book. That isn't out yet to, to just update on that, but once it comes out, you better believe I'll be, one, getting my own co- a copy, and two, uh, letting all our followers know that it's out as well. So thank you, Alex, for joining us uh, this week. If you want to follow her, go and do it and hear more about the be more pirate movement because it's a powerful powerful movement that has a lot of ways forward to to help bring about some amazing change i hope you're able to join us next week and until then look after yourselves